Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table. We discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Daryl Bach, Executive Director for Cultural Engagement at the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. And our topic today introduces a new series that we're going to be doing on occasion called Christian Thinkers. And my guest is Wynne Collier, who uh, directs the Eugene Peterson Center for Christian Imagination at Western Theological Seminary in Michigan, in Holland, Michigan. Is that correct? That's right. And where exactly is Holland located in Michigan? So we're right on Lake Michigan. We're about 40 minutes west of Grand Rapids. Okay. Uh, and, um, and you've just started there, right? You said la- last August was your, was your starting point, so you're new right. in the role. That's right. We moved from Charlottesville, Virginia, where I was pastor, and um, new, new folks to Michigan. So was that at All Souls uh, in Charlottesville? Is that where you were at? That's right. Okay. Um, so how does a nice guy like you get into a gig that involves um, being focused on one per- person in his ministry, Eugene Peterson? Well, it started um, back in 2000 when I was a bivocational pastor in Denver, Colorado, and there was a struggling church, and I was a, a, a newer pastor, fresh out of Dallas Seminary, and um, uh, one day after after Sunday, uh, one of the elders of the church came up to me and said, "When I have a book, and I think that, that you'll enjoy it. And he handed me a copy of Eugene's Working the Angles, The Shape of Pastoral Integrity. And... Um, I realized later what he meant was, when I think you need this. And I went home that afternoon and um, was only paragraphs in, and my heart was smitten because I, um, I began to get language for a kind of vision of pastoral life and conviction that I think my soul longed for, but I didn't, I didn't have a language for it. And started writing him letters. Um, he became a pastor to me through letters and, and, uh, in 2016, when I was visiting he and Jan, um, I was going back home and thinking about um, how someone was going to write his story, and the day was drawing near when that was probably going to happen. And, and uh, so I started thinking about how I hoped that story would um, tell his life, and uh, we began talking about it. And at first, he hated the idea, but um, we just kept talking, and, and eventually, I ended up doing it. So really, just born out of my own questions and yearning and and deep love and affection for Eugene. Would it be fair to call him kind of a pastor's pastor um, in terms of the way in which he approached discussions on ministry and the, and the life of the pastor in the local church? I mean, absolutely. I, I, I really don't think it's hyperbole to say that um, probably no American pastor of the last you know, 75 years at least, was more influential directly to pastors. And I was recently working with a church that was going through transition and um, was interviewing potential new pastors, and it was remarkable. I would say 85 to 90 percent of the pastors who sent in resumes, applications, somewhere um, referenced Eugene. Um, That was just really stunning to me. 
Well, of course, most people know him because of the work that he did um, in in Bible translation or Bible paraphrase, depending on how you want to um, break it down. I, I tell people there are two ways to render Scripture. One is uh, translation, where you're really solely concerned with rendering the original language, and the other is more uh, paraphrase, where you're trying to bring out the force and the significance of what is being said. It, um, they're both very legitimate ways to render the Word of God, and, uh, um, and, and the message was certainly a significant uh, piece of work that he did that I'm sure many, many Christians are familiar with. Do you know the story of how that came to be? Yeah, and I think story is actually really important. Um, he didn't set out to write uh, uh, a paraphrase or a translation of, of Scripture for America. That wasn't, that wasn't his goal. Eugene always said that theology, to be true theology, had to always be relational because it's always tied to the Trinity. So it, it began in the 70s when he was uh, a pastor in Bel Air, Maryland, and there was a lot of uh, cultural fear, a lot of um, a lot of uh, uh, racial and ethnic tensions in Baltimore. A lot of flight out of Baltimore. A lot of his parishioners were buying guns. He realized a lot of his neighbors were building building bomb shelters, and he was really concerned. Uh, this wasn't a Christian posture, and so he said, "We need to study Galatians because Galatians is a book of freedom, and freedom sets us free from fear." So he organized a Sunday school class. There were 11 or 12 of them sitting around a, a six-foot table, um, styrofoam cups of coffee, and he opened up Galatians, these electric words that he thought was going to just be like dynamite. And he said the first three to four weeks, people's eyes were glazing over. Um, no one saw what he was seeing in Galatians. No one was making the connections. He said, I got to do something about this. Why aren't they hearing the power of this language? So um, for the next week, he took the next section of Galatians, and he just paraphrased it. And he paraphrased it for those particular 12 people. And Xerox copied um, that, that section of Galatians. The next Sunday, passed them out, and he said, nobody touched their coffee. The minute they began reading, everybody was locked in. And he thought, I'm on, I'm on to something. Mm-hmm. And so he, he did that for the rest of the study of Galatians. Eventually, he wrote his book, Traveling Light which is his tour through Galatians. And at the beginning of each section, he, um, he put his little translation for that section that they'd be, um, that chapter would be about. Um, a, uh, a publisher found that book. I don't know what he thought of the actual uh, text, but he loved the translation and he, and he cut it out and, and pasted it all in a manila folder and spent the next month carrying it around with him, meditating on this, ended up giving um, Eugene a call and said, hey, would you be interested in doing this with the rest of the Bible? It's a long story as to how that ended up happening. Um, But Eugene, when he was first writing the message, he was doing that not for a a general public. He was doing that for particular people that he knew their names, he knew their struggles and stories, and he said he was actually translating the Scripture into Hartford County, Maryland. It was that specific. Hmm. 
So this is the relational dimension, of course, that you alluded to earlier, that uh, that relationship drives uh, ministry. I find it um, intriguing that Galatians is a, becomes a significant book. Of course, anyone who knows the story of the Reformation and Martin Luther knows that Galatians was a very important book in really, um, in many ways, launching the Reformation. So there's uh, interesting history there. You said he gave you a language um, to understand kind of uh, – the ministry that um, that pastors are engaged in, um, can you uh, unpack that a little bit? What was it? What was it that he was? What is it that he put his finger on that you went, "Ooh, man, I need to pay attention to that." I think for me, I did not realize how much my understanding of the pastoral life had been overtaken by. Um, uh, modern American leadership techniques, um, corporate mindset, um, always sort of certainly finding some Bible verses to attach to it to make it seem appropriate. But I just, I didn't, hadn't seen how desperate I was for um, a pastoral life that was actually about God. And um, it, it struck me that I had spent a lot of time talking about God using God language, desiring, I think, some good God things, but not really um, having God as the center character in the story. There were other elements, too. I mean, he opened me to a world of literature and poetry and um, uh, theological voices that I hadn't, hadn't been listening to, and all of it just flowed together in a life that felt true and human and holy all at the same time. Hmm. Interesting. Not to get us deflected too much, but I see that you have a Ph.D. from the University of Virginia, and you focused on the relationship between religion and literary fiction. So that sounds like a offshoot of kind of what you're talking about here. Talk a little bit about about what it means for a pastor to be connected, and I'm going to say it this way, and you can reframe it if, if I'm off, but being connected to kind of what's going on around him a little bit, being engaged with the way in which people are trying to come to grips with life, uh, which I'm assuming is part of what uh, is the attraction to putting together religion and literary fiction. Sure, yeah. Well, um, even sp- specifically, my, my research topic um, – owes some something of debtedness to, to Eugene too because I I was did it specifically on Wendell Berry's fiction and I was intrigued by um, Eugene's assertion that whenever he read Wendell um, if he inserted uh, church for farm and pastor for farmer it almost always worked hmm. the story told a very true and biblical pic, uh, picture of of what it looks like to be um, in God's world. And I think Eugene just, just in a very basic level, just believed that the incarnation tells us that to become more like God is to become more rooted in this world, is to become more human, is to become more aware, more engaged, um, more open, more curious. And literature can really help us do that. I think it's only in sort of modern it seems to me as I'm reading, um, it's, it's only a, a modern phenomenon that we sort of separate all these types of learning. And, um, and there's just uh, an ease of flow back and forth with, with our neighbors, with um, people that we're in the diner with on, on Tuesday morning and worship on Sunday morning. 
and the questions that, that these things are fueled by and the stories that we read in you know the Paris Review or in Wendell Berry and the poetry that we read and how all these things just come together and that God is telling us something in the midst of all of that. So um, let, let's unpack that a little bit. If you were to articulate what you think are some of the major themes that uh, Eugene Peterson um, challenged people with, I'll say it that way, um, and challenged pastors with, what would you say some of those themes would be? Well, they all come back to that one central fact of God and you know, a lot of times I feel like I should have a more clever way to say this, but I really don't. Um, he thought that one of the primary jobs of a pastor was to help people learn how to pray. And that didn't necessarily mean the techniques of prayer. It meant a, a life of attention to God. Eugene said that a, a pastor was someone who stood in the midst of a community and more than any other word said one thing, God pointed one direction, God. When I was, um, uh, one of the times on the trips I took up to Bel Air, Maryland, to his former parish at Christ Our King, and I found a bunch of um, tapes from his years there at Christ Our King, and it was the entire service. It wasn't just the sermon. And um, these tapes, I had found an old, I didn't even have a, a tape player anymore, and I had an old plug-in Radio Shack um, uh, tape player that was like on its last leg, whirring and <laughs> and I, I was plugging it into the cigarette lighter in my um, 2004 Honda Pilot, which makes a, an awful amount of racket. And I was driving between Charlottesville, Virginia and Washington, D.C., which is not an enjoyable drive. And traffic is crazy and all this noise. And then I'm sticking in this, this tape. And this tape is crunchy, and the, the label is peeling off, and the recording is awful. The mics, who knows what kind of mics they had back then, and it was you know, 20, 30 years old at this point. Everything about this was the opposite of good sound design and good experience. All the things that we're taught we are supposed to have if we're going to have a, you know, a genuine encounter with God and, um, and sort of our modern culture, be relevant, all this sort of thing. And I, I plug this in, and there's the whirring noise and the sound of traffic and my clunky car. And I hear Eugene's raspy voice that he said those, those four words at the beginning of almost every service at Christ our King. He said, let us worship God. And in the moment I heard those words, I'm sitting here in my Honda Pilot, and I'm, and I'm tearing up. And um, I think it's because those words were resonant with his life, that I had encountered this man in person and in his writings and in his life and in his friendships enough to know that those words carried weight, and he meant it. And um, there's a lot we could unpack from there, but I really think that those four words and what I encountered in him is at the core of what his challenge is to us. And, and what strikes me about the way you've told that uh, uh, story is um, we're worshiping God in the midst of the noisiness and distraction of life. I mean, that's, 
that's kind of the point, is to prepare people to know how to negotiate life as it is with God as he is. That's exactly right. In fact, so his last, um, his sort of magnum opus was his five-volume uh, spiritual theology. Um, and he said, to call something spiritual theology is simply to insist that everything that's in the scriptures can be lived. And it's one of the reasons that he loved Bart. Um, he studied Bart his entire life. Um, but the older he got, it was actually very few of the particulars of what Bart actually taught that compelled him. It was actually his posture toward God um, in that and that he was as concerned about getting the truth lived as he was about getting the truth right. Mm-hmm. And that was Eugene's conviction is that it's got to be lived. And so, again, uh, just to bring out a theme that you mentioned early on, the relational dimension of what's going on is um, a driving force for understanding what's going on. You know, I, I often say about engagement that um, – that the challenge that the Christian faces because, you know, we're aliens in a strange land and we're designed to be counterculture and, you know, all the things that you normally hear. Um, the challenge is, particularly for people who are Bible-believing, who are con- who are very conservative, is, is that we're very focused on getting things right, but that means that we may not pay enough attention to the relational dimension of what it means to be engaged with somebody. And you can be right about what it is that you're thinking about, but if you're relationally off and wrong, you're still wrong. And, uh, and it strikes me that getting that balance right, reflecting the character of God, the concern of God, the love of God, even in the midst of the pursuit of justice and and righteousness and orthodoxy and whatever other terms you want to put around it, is actually a very important part of the portrait. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the thing that strikes me about Eugene Peterson and, and the things that he's known for is this kind of relational pastoral dimension. That's why I earlier said he's a pastor's pastor, because the heart of what he was about clearly comes through, um, even in the way he handled um, passages in the message. Um, there's this dimension uh, which sometimes people complain about. And so I, it's fun being a New Testament person who's done translation, um, le- watching people react to something that someone else does with the text. And, and, and I'm sitting here going, oftentimes you'd get the, you get a pulse to the translation, to his translation, that you wouldn't get in a, in a normal rendering, but that was after something related to the heart. Um, in other words, what was the spirit behind these words that we're reading, et cetera? And I think in some ways that's the um, um, secret sauce of the message. Um, uh, am, I, am I reading him right? Am I reading the message right in that sense? Yeah, I think you are. I mean, you know, he talked a whole lot about the, the – for Christians, the necessity of ways and means – and it's exactly what you're talking about. His book, The Jesus Way, is all about that when we say Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, that this this idea of the way is 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 it's the entire path. It's actually the way that he walked, mm-hmm. and that we cannot separate um, a abstract ideal from the posture with which we carry that. And so, um, I think it's why he saw a lot of 
a lack of congruity between things that are professed and then attitudes that are carried, postures towards neighbors, um, and uh, that sometimes what we really believe is revealed in the way that we do it. And certainly as he's, so as he's, as he's translating the message, um, you know, and as an aside, I would say he never actually was very comfortable with like the message as a pulpit Bible. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he wasn't trying to say that this was the, the ultimate and final uh, tra- translation that Christians should be using. It was very much what you're saying. It was attempting to, allow uh, scripture to be heard anew and again, to land in the, in the resonant language of someone's heart and soul. And um, there's certainly a lot of debate to be had about particular places where, he, you know, where he translated one way or the other. Um, but most of those questions do miss what he was actually doing, which is more what you're um, what you're highlighting. Yeah. yeah, I'm I'm very familiar with the story of the Living Bible. I did work on the on the Living Bible in Luke and Acts, and uh, when it was when it, they were moving it from more of a paraphrase to more of a translation, and um, and so I heard the story about how Kenneth Taylor put together the Living Bible as a paraphrase. And really, all he was doing, it's a very similar story, actually, to um, Peterson's story with the message. All he was trying to do was to render the Bible in a way that would um, enhance family devotions. Uh, and, and so so here's this man um, commuting from a suburb of Chicago into the city, and he's got this time on the subway, you know, to, to himself from day to day, and what he's doing is he's, he's creating this paraphrase, never ever intending, as you suggested also with the message, that it replace a pulpit Bible, but to understand that what a paraphrase is designed to do and to be is to help people hear the Word of God afresh. And, and to do it in a way that might capture their attention for the direction of what the text is doing, um, uh, to capture a heart and a soul, uh, not just the mind. And in the midst of doing that, a pull people into really seeing uh, what the Word of God is after. Um, uh, that, that strikes me as being um, important. In, in the hustle and bustle of life and in the distractions that life uh, produces, I'm, I, I find myself wanting to ask, so, um, and you've alluded to this, so I'd love to hear your development of it, and that is there's a sense in which I'm hearing a pastor looking at, at a set of parishioners that he's dealing with who he feels are struggling with how to engage, how to reflect their Christian life in the midst of a challenging world, and they're reacting out of fear, they're nervous, um, and so uh, and he wants to come along with a pastor's heart and say, um, you don't have to fear, you don't have to be so nervous. Uh, so my question is, I'm terrible way of working up to it, but um, my question is, um, how would he have viewed what we often call the culture war and the way in which we approach um, approach engagement in a world that is pushing against uh, much of what uh, we believe? God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. 
In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. Well, I mean, he pastored during some of the early stages of those culture wars, and we can, you know, get a really good picture. I mean, he he mostly um, avoided them. Um, sometimes I think some some people who didn't know him. Uh, perceived that to be a, an act of cowardice or um, it, it, but it wasn't it was um, he distrusted the the way um, he 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 believed that things um, well on one hand I think he did believe that things uh, changed more in the small conversations and moved out from there than they did in the large um, trumpet um, environments, but it may also have just been in, in other ways. It's at times he would just say that's what he had to give. That's how he was to engage. So, for instance, he was often asked to sign these large declarations. You know, a hundred evangelical leaders or uh, Christian um, uh, thinkers would issue some statement um, that was going to get published in a magazine or something, and he would get asked inevitably to sign, and he never did. Hmm. Um, there were times where he even agreed with it and he wouldn't sign it. And his reason was I'm a pastor and I don't make broad general statements to an unknown public. I feel called to pastor particular people that I know. Um, Now, again, I don't think that's necessarily to say that those things should never happen, but it is to say that Eugene felt he had a particular role and it was, it was as pastor and um, he was also more comfortable with ambiguity than a lot of times we are. And he didn't have overly idealistic pictures of what a church looked like as far as who makes it up. He always expected to find um, sinners and strang- uh, strugglers. And, and, uh, and he thought that sometimes in our, in our rush to um, pursue a righteous ideal, we might uh, run roughshod over the actual stories and people that God is busy healing. And so he didn't, he didn't participate in what we call culture wars. Okay. So, um, so we've said that, um, that God was at the center of what he was doing, that there was a strong relational element, that he was very um, conscious of the of I can say if I can say this the local nature of ministry um, uh, ministry to a particular people um, any other core principles you can think of that are a part of uh, uh, that he t- wanted to teach people how to pray and I, by the way I meant to say this at the time and I'm I'm you're reminded as we're summarizing 
uh, it strikes me, you know, a lot of people think when they pray that what they pray is they pray their what I call their lists, you know, um, you know, uh, Aunt Bessie and 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 Uncle Fred and that kind of thing, and and yet what I'm hearing from you is is uh, if I can say it this way, a listening for God in the midst of prayer. Um, Am I am I reading that right? Is that is that part of the theme of getting getting prayer, kind of yeah, teaching people right. how to pray? Yeah. So he was. I'm going to guess he was probably asked the question of how do you pray more more than any other question he was asked, and he was often very reticent to give. Um, people would ask, "How do you pray?" And he was often reticent to talk too much on specifics. Because he feared that people would just try to replicate his um, his discipline. Um, I love how oftentimes when someone would ask, "How do I learn how to pray?" His question would often be, "Well, tell me what you love." And his uh, um, his belief was that as we learn to pay more and more attention to the way God has put desire and longing into our heart, that we bring what we love to God and God begin to tra- begins to transform that into a life of prayer. And so, you know, one of my favorite definitions he has of prayer is really simple. It just says, prayer is a life lived at attention to God. And that is um, certainly involves words and talking to God, but it involves um, quiet and listening it it involves um, in this conversation right now. How how is God present in this conversation that we're having, and how can I be attentive to God here? Um, it's it's a it's a full orbed um, ex- expression of God being present in each and every moment and breath. So again, we're back to kind of where we started, which is the the whole relational dimension that undergirds um, what it means. To walk with God, I, I find it interesting that you use the phrase "the way." Of course, this is the way uh, that Acts describes the early Christian movement. It, it's called the way, and you know, um, yeah, the term Christian is introduced as well. But that was a, de- a designation coming from outsiders about those who believed in Christ. The way, <laughs> the way Luke describes the faith is the way, and uh, um, and and it is. It's it's a it's thinking about life lived on a different plane, if I can say it that way, um, and in thinking about life lived with um, with a presence uh, beyond our own that uh, leads and guides. Um, it's life lived in touch with the Holy Spirit who dwells within us and who uh, directs us and gives us a sense of our connection to God. Um, and and you and you sense that in in what it is um, in what it is that Eugene was bringing to the conversation. I love the title of the of the authorized biography that you have, "A Burning in My Bones." Describe um, why that was the title of the book. Well, it's taken from his um, rendering of uh, the words in Isaiah, um, and I'm sorry, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a, a prophet that was really important to Eugene. Um, he wrote a lot about Jeremiah, um, and it seemed to me that those words really reflected Eugene's own heart, longing for God, um, longing for a, a practice of this prayerful life we're talking about, which is a life of attentiveness to God. 
and yet that it's very alive. It's very invigorated. It's very rooted in this world. Um, and it seemed to me like that, that really uh, captured much of what I encounter and experience in Eugene. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking about this, and when I hear the word burning and I think about the Bible, the first thing that I think of is the burning bush, where God is present uh, with Moses and and gets Moses' attention. And, and then when you think about a burning in my bones, that burning has moved from the outside, if you will, to the inside, which of course is the movement of the Bible. The movement of the Bible is, is that God has has a covenant that he makes with a people. He gives them laws, etc. But what we come to see is that that isn't a good enough way to walk with God. God's got to do a work from the inside out. And so that burning comes to the inside. And and my sense is, is that is that um, part of what Eugene was about was uh, was making sure that people had a sense of what it meant to be indwelt by God and to and to draw on that. Fair? Very fair. Yeah. Well, Wynn, I want to thank you for uh, giving us some of your time to talk about uh, Eugene and uh, and and what he represents. Talk. A, give me uh, before we wrap up. Let me ask you one more question. Tell us a little about the center there and what it's designed to do. Well, there were um, three groups of people that always found their way to Eugene. One was pastors. We've talked a lot about that. Um, the second was creatives, so writers, musicians, potters, uh, painters. Um, they were always inviting Eugene into their circles. There was something about the vision Eugene had of the Christian life that made sense to them and made their work noble. And then there's this third group that I would just think of as um, hopeful uh often befuddled Christians trying to be faithful and found in Eugene a witness to um, to God in a way that felt true and human. And so we hope to continue conversations with all three of those groups. So we've started two Doctor of Ministry programs. One is called Holy Presence, Eugene Peterson and the Pastoral Imagination. One's called the Sacred Art of Writing. We're starting circles of friendship for pastors and conversations between theologians and pastors and um, artists and writers and a number of other efforts like that. So we're just trying to bear witness to um, God's presence in the world in a way that's um, following in the vein that, that, that Eugene um, set out for us. And is the center new? I mean, it, 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 was it created with your coming to the, to the seminary? That's right. It's brand okay. new. Yeah, we're just getting started. Oh wow! Well, I I have I have center experience, so uh, my thoughts and prayers are with you. Uh, Send me your wisdom. Yeah. So, well, great. Thank you for spending uh, time with us and sharing a little bit. Uh, this has just been a snippet, but a little bit about Eugene Peterson and his heart. And I think it's appropriate that the kind of the first installment of Christian thinkers um, involves someone who is deeply committed pastorally to the to the heart of the church into the heart of a walk with God. I, I just think that's a great fit for us. So thank you for helping us launch the series, When We wish you all the best there in Michigan as you work um, with the center <laughs> and all the challenges that come therein, and I, I think I know what that means. Uh, and we really do appreciate you giving us your time. 
Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a real joy to, to chat with you. Yeah. And we thank you for joining us on the table today. Uh, please do subscribe to the show. Um, uh, on your favorite podcast app, uh, leave a review. This helps people to discover who we are and learn a little bit more about the table. And we hope you'll join us next time when we discuss issues of God and culture. And we just wish you a blessed day. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well.